Exceptional Marcus Pierce. Rockstar Damien Christoph. The Wellness Summit is almost upon us and we have so many prizes and giveaways before the summit even begins this year, MP. That's right, Damo. There's a very exciting Facebook giveaway running this week only over at the Wellness Couch. One of our new exhibitors at this year's summit is Solid Technics Cast Iron and Beautiful Non-Stick Cookware. And they are giving away over $400 in prizes to one lucky Wellness Couch listener. All you need to do is go to The Wellness Couch's Facebook page and follow the prompts. The lucky winner will also receive a double pass to this year's Wellness Summit, September 10 11 at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. How cool is that? So go check out the Wellness Couch on Facebook to enter and remember to immerse yourself in 16 hours of powerhouse wellness with Damo, myself and over 40 other health and wellness experts. Go to thewellnesssummit.com and enter the code SOLIDSUMMIT for $100 of your ticket before they sell out. That's thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Today, I have Dr. Pam Peake on the line. and Dr. Peake is an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and expert in the fields of nutrition, metabolism, stress, and fitness. She is a widely acclaimed women's health expert and co-host of the popular HER or Hearst radio show. It's, a, it's an American show on iHeart and Radio MD. Dr. Peake is a Pew Foundation Scholar in Nutrition and Metabolism, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Maryland and Fellow of the American College of Physicians. And Dr. Peake is the New York Times bestseller author of Fight Fat After 40 and Body for Life for Women. Her latest book, The Hunger Fix, which is the three-stage detox and recovery plan for overeating and food addiction, is what we'll be talking about today. It has become a New York best um, selling list, and uh, Dr. Peake is also a regular in-studio medical commentator for the national networks, including being on the Dr. Oz show, and is also a monthly columnist and contributor, editor for numerous national magazines, including ones we see in Australia, which is prevention, women's health, um, and fitness. Dr. Peak is also the founder of the Peak Performance Center for Healthy Living, including her Peak Week Retreats. I love that. I think that is just wonderful, the Peak Week Retreats and Lifestyle Management Program. Welcome, Dr. Peak. Oh, I'm so happy to be on with you. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun, and kudos to you and your team for you know, giving a shout-out and networking with uh, thought leaders from around the globe. So this is all good. Well, I see you as a thought leader because, um, you know, I've listened to you and, and read your information. And, you know, food addiction is something, and that's what I'd really like to concentrate on, if that's okay. Because uh, food addiction that's is, what it's is something about. that is real. Yeah. Look, it's, it's a real thing, and it's happening. So can we start with how did you get into food addiction? Well, you know, um, I have been a scientist and a physician for years in the field of um, nutrition um, and have done research at the National Institutes of Health as well. And what one of the things that was always strange, Cindy, was that my patients would sound like little junkies. You know, they would come in saying, I need a hit, I need a fix, 
um, withdrawal is hell. Um, and, and they would always use this sort of drug vernacular. And I swear, if you were just walking by, you'd think they were talking about cocaine or heroin or something. And, um, you know, all of us who are experts would sort of laugh uh, kind of, you know, nervously, as it were, um, about this because, uh, you know, we would say to ourselves, well, I wonder if there's anything to this. Could it be? Um, and we knew deep in our hearts and souls that once the um, these hyperpalatable foods, the refined, processed, sugary, fatty, salty combos started appearing on the horizon globally, that people started sounding like little junkies. And so um, I was always quite fascinated with this, and I've been following a lot of this literature and the emergence of this new science for the last 10 years. And then suddenly over the last probably four years, we've had a kind of a mountain um, effect. We have a tipping point of research that has really shown that there are profound changes that are taking place in the brain's reward center um, where when you have foods, especially the refined sugary foods, um, in vulnerable brains, not everyone's, but in vulnerable brains, um, turns out there are organic changes that take place in that brain over time that are indicative of every addictive food process, not just sugar, but every. So when you look at the brain scans and you put them side by side, whether you're you know, a methamphetamine addict, a coke head, or an alcoholic, and then you put someone who is credentialed by the Yale Food Addict Scale right next to them, you look at the reward centers, they are indistinguishable. There's no difference when you're comparing them to, say, a normal person who, um, in this case, the normal would be non-addicted. And so that's a real mind-boggler. It's like, oh, my gosh, what's that about? <laughs> um, mm. And so I've been following that, and I, that's why I wrote The Hunger Fix, which is the first consumer book describing this very science. Um, and what goes on inside the brain, and then obviously what we can do about it. So for many people who, you know, are not food, addicted to food, you know, they they eat for fuel as opposed to eating for any other reason. They don't get it. You know, they say, just don't put that food in your mouth. Um, but it's not that simple, is it, with, when you're talking about um, addiction to these foods? Well, you know, um, there's a wide spectrum of issues that go along with this. So it's not just like everyone's the same. Um, you know, when it comes to something like um, alcoholism, I mean, you know, or, or if you're addicted to cocaine or heroin, uh, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus, you know. Um, it's, it's a black and white situation. There's no playing around here. Whereas... When it comes to food, there's a wide, you know, spectrum of how this manifests itself. And some people have quite a problem. They tend to be people who have a history of other addiction in their life as well. They may be former smokers. They may be people who have inherited genetic addictive tendencies from parents and grandparents, you know, who were alcoholics, drug addicts, or cigarette smokers, or all the rest of it. And so... Um, you know, you have other people who really don't have that kind of issue. Um, they just picked it up by the way they were raised. 
So there's no strong genetic issue, but there is a, what we call an epigenetic issue, meaning that your environment influenced what was going on in your reward center. Now, when you say, oh, for crying out loud, just put that down, and you should just be able to eat one cookie, not 35 of them, and back and forth, well, would it be that easy? Um, everyone's brain is different. And some people are just hardwired to be exquisitely sensitive to um, these these uh, these kinds of you know food like products because most of them are just processed junk. Um, and so when that happens, um, they have a hypersensitive reaction in the reward center versus those people who can just have a cookie and walk away. Um, and so you can't you can't compare apples to oranges here. You've got very different histories, very different um, brains that are either primed or not primed to cave to the craze. And and that's why you have to honor everyone's uniqueness. There's also one other layer here, Cindy, that's very important. It's not just the reward center in the brain that's affected when you have addictive-like tendencies. Instead, it's also the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain right behind your forehead. If you tap your forehead, it's right behind there. And I kind of call it the smarty pants part of the brain. It's the part that um, is, is the CEO, the command central for the, for the entire brain. It helps you um, rein in impulsivity. It helps you plan, strategize, be mindful, vigilant. Pay attention, stay in the present, um, be organized, all right? So that part of the brain is absolutely essential. Now, what we found is in during the full-on addictive-like state, when you just can't have one and you're, you're binging and, and on and on, and this is also true for all addictive states, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or, you know, the refined foods, um, what we found is that the this smarty pants part of the brain is impaired. It's impaired. And we see this on special brain scans that show how that part of the brain metabolizes glucose or sugar. We find that it's grossly impaired. So that if you walk up to someone and you say, oh, for crying out loud, why don't you just, you know, show better willpower for, you know, I mean, what's wrong with you? Well, you know, when you walk up to someone with an impaired prefrontal cortex and, and you tell them to do that, that's very much like telling someone with two broken legs to run a 5K. You know, it's not going to happen. Um, and, they're, you know, until they are able to, you know, get off the stuff, clean it up, you know, mentally, nutritionally, physically, spiritually, until they're able to clean that up and strengthen that, smarty pants part of the brain, then you cannot ask them by any means to be making an appropriate choice. And, and that's the issue here. So you actually have organic changes involved here. And that's, that's the answer. So what I've got so far is that um, we're looking at several layers. So we're looking at um, perhaps a genetic predisposition and then the epigenetics and the lifestyle that um, triggers those, the hypersensitivity uh, and the prefrontal cortex uh, um, being impaired. So is it uh, food that is 
is causing the prefrontal cortex to be impaired and is it like a muscle that, you know, the more you um, become mindful and, and get your strength and do everything right, the stronger it gets, will it be repaired? Absolutely. See, that's the good news. Boy, I'd never do an interview if I had nothing but bad news. <laughs> be kind of a bummer. Um, no, um, instead, um, there's no question that we have watched that, for instance, when you do meditation, right, um, a number of things are taking place. One of the first things that happens during um, meditation in people who have been meditating for quite some time. So these are people who haven't just sort of like meditated once a month, but they've been at it. You know, it's sort of like when you want to learn how to run a 5K, you can't learn to do that by running once a month. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. You've got to be running on a fairly regular basis, you know, three times a week, whatever. But you've got to be able to do it. Well, the same thing goes with meditation. So when you do meditation, guess what happens? And this is especially true in transcendental meditation, which is TM. Um, we've seen this in mindfulness meditation. What happens is the circulation to that smarty pants part of the brain during meditation actually increases. And we actually also watch activation of the prefrontal cortex during meditation. Now, that's extraordinary. I mean, how, how can that possibly happen, right? Well, as it turns out, it happens because you're, you're tapping into deep reservoirs of um, mindfulness, vigilance, and you're kind of in a state of restful alertness. Now, if that's not enough to convince you, then how about this? We have found that in mindfulness meditation, we've done epigenetic research to find out that the genes that control, say, for instance, inflammation throughout the body, and you know we don't want inflammation. We want everything all nice and calm in the body because inflammation is the basis for um, problems like cancer, heart disease, um, and diabetes. So um, when we tap into and look at those specific genes responsible for inflammation and we watch what happens pre and post meditation, guess what? We notice that those genes have a different what we call gene expression or messaging to the rest of the body after, after uh, meditation meaning that during meditation you are actually changing what these genes say to the rest of the body. Now, if that isn't cool, I mean, just give it up right now, which means that you're getting an incredible payback. And then the final coup de grace, when you do, um, when you practice mindful living, when you practice being present and centered, then you actually um, change gene expression in the brain such that you are able to carve and create new neural circuitry in the brain to supervene over the addictive impulses so that now mindfulness is predominant and over the course of time, the 
screaming, raging, food-addicted um, uh, uh, voices that you hear in your head become more of a whisper. They never go away 100%. They become, uh, hopefully one day, in almost an inaudible whisper. But there's always that presence. It's just that you can now be more strong and powerful. And you can now make the right choices because your brain has been able to adapt because you've helped it through mindful living and meditation. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Like I've been reading quite a bit on behavioral epigenetics, but I hadn't heard it. You know, I, I had heard about it in the way you think, but you're saying when you get into that meditation. So my question to you is that, you know, there's so many, so much meditation out there, and there's so many people that are doing tapes and um, audios and, and things like that. What do you do this um, in your work? Is it? Can we find it on your website? Okay, so you know there are multiple kinds of meditation, right? Um, I personally um, am, you know, a fan of both transcendental meditation and mindfulness. And um, if people want to learn um, more about this, I actually have a great video on my um, website, which is um, Dr. Peek, D-R-P-E-E-K-E dot com. Um, and you'll see me do my thing talking about um, uh, meditation and the science behind all of this, including epigenetics. And I did this as sort of a TED Talk. Um, which is very, very neat. Um, and, I, and I bring this up also um, uh, in a multitude of other uh, venues on my website as well. So um, that being said, uh, the other place you can learn more about, say, for instance, Transcendental Meditation, is just go to tm.org, um, O-R-G, and then you can also find a teacher. Because with TM, you have to have a teacher. You can't just sort of, you know, learn this off some CD or something. Um, mindfulness has other options. Um, you, you can learn this through a variety of different uh, uh, avenues. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of Thich Nhat Hanh, who is probably um, one of the great names in um, mindfulness He's uh, probably one of the most famous um, of the uh, Buddhist uh, monks um, who has uh, popularized this through about 70 different books. Um, there is a uh, great primer, he writes, um, which is um, The Miracle of Mindfulness. Um, again, that's Thich Nhat Hanh. That's T-H-I-C-H, not N-H-A-T, Hanh, H-A. NH. He also wrote um, Pieces Every Step and a number of others, and just beautiful stuff. Mm. I mean, I, I really think that, um, you know, uh, there are lots of resources to learn how to do this. What, what we're really trying to do when we look at this relationship between um, food and addiction um, is to really, uh, uh, you know, draw back now and say, how how can I help myself? How do I know I have such an issue? And um, what can I do to be able to um, work with myself on this? Well, the first thing you want to do is realize we actually have a tool now. I mentioned it earlier, the Yale Food Addict Scale. 
And this has been something Yale University here in the United States um, credentialed, um, peer-reviewed, um, has already been published. Uh, and we use this as a tool. The, the Harvard Nurses Study is now using this in a big, you know, uh, 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 study that they're doing on um, the relationship between food and addiction among the, you know, 80,000 nurses that they're looking at. So um, if anyone wants to take a very quick test, you just go to my website, and that's drpeeke.com, and just go where it says food addiction on the home page. Click on that, and the first thing you'll see is are you a food addict, and then you just want to click on that, and there's a quick JavaScript um, test that it shouldn't take you more than, geez, two minutes, if that, Um, and it'll give you a quick swipe. The longer version and the shorter version are also in my book, in my e-book, which is The Hunger Fix. There's not just about the, you know, the meditation and, and then knowing you're a food addict. And I think most of these people know that they are. Like, and I've seen, you know, the extremes of it where, you know, a young girl can't, you know, she, she's in love with her food. She, she looks like she's actually kissing her food as she eats it and she, won't take that time, male and female, it's not just women, but they won't take that time and they can't get out of that hole and they won't meditate and they won't listen to their parents and they're making blame. You know, what What do we do when we look at, you know, we've got somebody like that, where's our first starting point, even when they don't even want to help themselves, but, you you know, as a mother, you are just being crushed by what is happening. Well, you know, um, one of the reasons why a lot of this happens um, I mean, there's so many things that go on, is that um, many um, uh, children and preteens and teens and then obviously well into adulthood, um, many you know, these subsectors of the population use food to soothe themselves. You know, it's, it's comforting and soothing to them because something is happening around them that they need to, as it were, anesthetize off times because it's confusing, it's troubling, it's challenging, and they find themselves needing to soothe themselves without even fully realizing it. And therefore, they place way more emphasis on food and its ability to make them feel good than, as it were, a non-addictive person would. So, for instance, we see this a lot in troubled families. We see this a lot where, even in not in troubled families, where a child may be just super sensitive and they see themselves as maybe the middle child and, they're, and they, they feel abandoned and not, um, uh, and, and feeling as though people aren't paying enough attention to them. They may have issues at school. Um, they may have body image issues where they don't feel as though they're measuring up to their peers. There are just countless things that occur for a child, a preteen or a teen, because those are very precarious years. Here's the important thing. During that time, remember the smarty pants part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex? Well, in young people, it's not as well, you know, it's not as well developed. It doesn't reach full maturation until um, the end of the teens, until about age 20, 21. Meaning that if you're asking a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old to, you know, reach deeply into a level of maturity to make the right choice, good luck with that. Because many of them do not have um, the, the assets, as it were, 
to be able to pull that off. They just don't. It just doesn't work for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So um, another question that I have is that um, a lot of people feel helpless, hopeless, and defeated. Um, and so how do how do they get out of that emotion? And now we're talking about adults that know exactly where they are and they're, they're in that helpless, hopeless, defeated state. How right. Well, th- those are the three musketeers that I always talk about, helpless, hopeless, defeated, because they all like to hang out together. Well, yeah. here's the deal. The good news is, we, we know how to help you, you know, with this. I usually use a program of mind, mouth, and muscle. You know, I like the M's. Um, this way, you know, somehow the older you get in life, the more you alliterate, um, just so you can remember everything. So mind, mouth, and muscle is easy to remember. So um, if we look at that then, I like looking at it in a holistic, integrative approach. The first thing you've got to realize is that um, in order to help yourself, it would be very nice to at least for the for the time being sidebar you know just put aside those kinds of food products that really seem to be troublesome so if every single time you're around candy bars you lose it well guess what you know the last thing you want sitting around your house are a bunch of candy bars now there are those people who say well why don't you just restructure your relationship with that candy bar, keep it in the house and just, you know, no problem at all, just learn to have one. Well, yeah, um, that works for some people. It doesn't work for everybody. The grand majority of people actually feel a great deal of relief not having this stuff around. Why? Because it reignites the reward center. So why do you want to keep doing that to yourself? Why don't you just put it aside for the time being, and at some time later down the pike, you know, whenever, um, you can revisit that and say, you know, is it really worth it? Is it truly worth it? You know, and and that's that's very important to ask. Is it really worth it? Um, And if the answer is no, then why do you want to revisit it at all? I mean, there is life after, you know, not having that particular candy bar. I mean, you know, there's plenty of other things to have. Um, and, and so that's an important thing. You, and then you've got to create um, a, a, a culture of support around you. And that means um, the people who you are living with, working with, everyone in your you know, immediate living kind of you know, sphere, um, get them on board to support you so that you don't have people who are enabling and, and running you into problems with, you know, maybe inadvertent sabotage. Who the hell knows? You, you know, you just need to be able to create an environment within which you can pull this off, meaning having foods that you feel comfortable with but will not binge on, um, that you don't feel compulsively, um, impulsively uh, wanting to overeat on a routine basis. And then you've got to start practicing every single day from mind, mouth, and muscle, meaning that once you start eating more whole foods, and this is, you know, protein and fiber together kill carb cravings, so you're going to have whole foods, you're going to have regular physical activity. Notice I did not use the E word, exercise. (laughs) I said physical activity, get up, assume the vertical, and walk. I mean, as a, as a beautiful, easy, simple start. And then at the same time, live more mindfully in the present. 
and be more mindful of, of those moments, those triggers, those cues that kick you into that urge to want to um, cave to the crave. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I, re- I remember listening to you speaking one time and, you know, you were talking about this culture of support and um, what, how our, our, our peers and our uh, family and friends can help us. But you know what? Addicts can be very devious and they still go to petrol stations and they still go to the grocery store. And I, I, re- I would love you to tell everybody that that whole thing that you talk about between, you know, when you give up cocaine versus when you give up sugar and, and oh, how yeah. we're being oh, bombarded yeah. there. I love it. If you could talk well, about well, that. Well, you know, to be per- well, yeah, and, and you're spot on, Cindy. So, you know, what, what I found was that if you want to give up cocaine, then it's pretty straightforward. You're either on the wagon or you're off, black and white. You're either, you know, doing coke or you're not. I'm not going to put you on a moderate diet of cocaine. That's just not going to work. You know, I can't say, well, just have a little bit at lunch and, ooh, don't have anything in the mid-afternoon. You know, I mean, how ludicrous is that, right? Um, Now, when I wake up in the morning, okay, and I want to, you know, get off cocaine, then I have certain very simple, straightforward things I do. I get rid of every one of my loser friends you know, who are cocaine addicts, because I, I can't deal with that. You're out of here. You know, I can even move physically. I go bye-bye. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to move to a different city away from all my loser friends who are cocaine addicts, right? Um, and then I can, you know, find a brand new life to live and away from all this. I'm not going to spend my money on cocaine, save all my money, etc. All right, well, that's all real special and everything. Now, when I leave in the morning... Okay. and I want to go to work, do I see billboards um, with big signs that say, you know, hey, it's time to do a line of Coke. And then they have a nice big table with, a, you know, someone doing a line of Coke. Time to do your line of Coke. Wow, doing lines of Coke are so wonderful. I mean, how crazy is that? When's the last time I saw a billboard with that? How about never? Um, when you go into a grocery store, is there a special aisle in the grocery store that says cocaine here? You know, bring it on. You know, we got everything for you. All right, so what am I trying to say? When you're trying to give up something like a drug of abuse um, or, you know, a substance of abuse, like, you know, alcohol or whatever, um, you know, again, it's black and white. You're in and out. And, and then when you leave... Um, and go and live your life in the real world, you see very few, very few, if anything, other than like, you know, in the movies or something, um, any cues to do cocaine. You just don't see the cues. Alcohol is a tricky one because that's a, a little bit more like food because you see a lot of, you know, billboards and stuff. But nothing, nothing matches the cues and triggers that you will see for food. This is why when people say when you're coming off cocaine, it's like taking the dragon, the demon, the beast, and you take that beast and you, and you lock it up in a lead-lined box and you lock it up, take the key and throw it away. We're done. We don't want to see the beast anymore. But when you have to eat, what do you do? How can I honestly tell you that, you know, you're not going to be cued or triggered because you are on a moment-by-moment basis 
just get onto the internet, watch television, magazines, I could go on, you get the point, radio, everything. So everywhere you go, you are cued and triggered to overeat, to overconsume food, and then guess what? Funny how it's never tuna on a bed of greens that they're advertising out there. It's always the sugary, fatty, salty stuff. And when you see it daily, day in, day out, then that means that you've got to go back to that, you know, demon that sits in there um, in that uh, lead line box. And you actually, in order to eat your breakfast and all the rest of it, you've got to let the demon out three times a day and maybe, you know, for your snack four times a day. And you have to deal with the demon because the demon's going to be yelling and screaming in your ear, don't eat that apple. Have a Twinkie instead, you know, um, and, uh, you know, eat that candy bar, eat that whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with a candy bar. You're not going to die. However, for vulnerable brains, there's everything wrong with it because it's, it's guaranteed um, to, to go ahead and cue you into a binge if you fall for that, you know, craving. So that's why the issue with Food and addiction is so terribly complex and much more difficult to manage because every day, 24-7, you've got to continuously stay vigilant. Mm. It's so so hard and I see so many people going through um, this and they they do really well and they, they stick to the principles and they do exactly, you know, what you're saying. And then, you know, they fall again. Can you be addicted? Can the yo-yo dieter be addicted to the yo-yo dieting? Or as, you know, like they get on the wagon. Is there, is there like um, a chemical addiction to that type of thing where they lose weight, they feel good, um, they get off the sugar, and then they go back to it again? It's almost like they have well, an addiction well, you to know, Well, you know, you're, you're on to something interesting, and that's the whole issue of, um, you know, kind of getting hooked on things, all right? Um, Meaning that, you know, we have to see how we're using this word addiction. What it is is um, you become habituated. Um, You become used to, you know, certain patterns. And, And I think that occurs in a lot of people. But if you look at someone who's had a real issue with compulsive eating and binging and overeating and um, really, you know, having a number of trigger foods that really get them going. Now, we take someone like that and then, you know, we we have them uh, take on a, a very healthy lifestyle, okay, exercising, meditating, doing the whole thing. And then when you say they, as it were, fall off the wagon – and they're back at it again. I don't know that it's um, that they're really looking forward to another yo-yo diet or something. I think instead, if you go back to what incited that in the first place, that you're going to find, you know, in other words, that relapse for all intent and purposes, you're going to find that there was something going on, you know, with regard to trauma, with regard to um, uh, some kind of stress in their life, because the people who are most vulnerable to utilizing food to self 
soothe themselves, you know, and to self-comfort are those people who also have some difficulty adapting and adjusting to life stress without knee-jerking into some form of self-destruction. That is actually the Achilles heel of everyone who has an addictive-like um, behavior. Therefore, I would, I would challenge and go back to that person and say, what was going on at that time in your life? And oftentimes you'll hear things like this. Well, you know, I dropped 30 pounds. I feel so much better, you know, exercising, whatever. But I still have a rotten relationship with my husband. Okay. Well, what did you expect was going to happen after 30 pounds? That nirvana was going to hit? Um, you know, what you have to say to yourself then is that what were your expectations? The greatest stresses of life come from unmet expectations. That's one of my peakisms. And so you have to ask yourself, did you really think that all of a sudden someone would flip a switch and your whole relationship would just be, you know, boss Okino um, when you dropped 30 pounds? Did you really think that? And when it didn't happen, you felt, guess what, helpless, hopeless, and defeated. And when you felt that, what do you do? Well, you default back to the same self-destructive behaviors you did in the past unless you've learned to be smarter, meaning that you've been meditating, so now you'll default to that instead of self-soothing with the sugary, fatty, salty, hyperpalatable foods. But I'll put money on it. Every single time, it's because of some stress that knee-jerks you right into helpless, hopeless, and defeated, and then it starts a domino effect. And once you feel that, then you default back into the original, you know, overeating in the first place. Mm. Let, let, can we talk about more than just sugar here? Because I know that there are um, foods that create a morphine-type state in our body. Like I was um, reading William Davis's book, Wheat Valley, and he talked about glutenomorphin and the and apparently dairy has a type of morphine in there as well. And if you have a look at what we eat on a daily basis, we're eating wheat and, glu- wheat and um, dairy all the time. It's like we wake up in the morning, we have milk on our breakfast cereal, and then we may have a muffin with a bit of butter on it, and then we have a cheese sandwich, and then we might have crackers and cheese from afternoon tea, and then for dinner we might have a pasta with a white sauce. So... These are also, um, are these, no, I'm asking you, actually not saying it, are these also contributing to the, the obesity problem that we have, the, the, the reason why we can't lose weight and we keep gaining it back because we're told we should be eating the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet? So can well, you actually, um, we're, we're not really, you know, that's the, that, that whole issue of low-fat carbohydrate, you know, and the high-carbohydrate um, diet is not true anymore. What we're now doing is actually customizing dietary intake. Um, I personally, for instance, um, you know, look very closely at someone's background, um, and I uh, I look at their family history, their personal history of everything from heart disease to diabetes to cancer, and um, then I I look at what they're actually taking in, um, what they're having difficulty with. Um, and in terms of which of the macronutrients, what kinds of foods. Um, and so it, it, it totally, absolutely depends. I like to individualize. So really, if you look in the Hunger Fix, Body for Life for Women, 
you know, the other books I've written, mm-hmm. um, what, what I really love to see is this kind of a ratio closer to 30% fat, if not 35%. 30 to 35% fat, obviously the healthier fats like avocado and nuts and things like that and, and, um, olive oil. Um, and then for protein, about 30% for sure. And so that only leaves you um, anywhere between 35 to 40 percent um, carbohydrate, and of that carbohydrate, um, I highly prioritize vegetables as the number one, and especially the non-starchy vegetables, you know, the greens and things like this, um, and then secondarily some fruit, and then um, uh the tertiary um, part of, the, of carbohydrates are grains, and I'm looking at quinoa and barley and, and things that are much more healthy than, um, you know, slapping on a bunch of bread and, and, and whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, this is why when, uh, you know, in the Wheat Belly and, and Grain Brain and all the rest of these books that really look at this, um, I think it's really important to remember that people are different um, and that what bothers one person may not may be a moot point for the next. For instance, for myself, I don't really care about bread. I mean, bread doesn't do much of anything for me. So um, I almost never have bread on a daily basis. For that matter, any bread I ever have is high quality, meaning it's very multigrain, and um, it's organic, and it's also something I have only on an occasional basis. I could care less about bread. doesn't mean anything to me. Um, whereas I have other people who die for bread. They just, you know, put, you know, tons and tons of junk on it, butter and everything else. And, and they'll, they'll run through half a loaf or a loaf of bread. They don't care. They just love the stuff. So, you know, that's why I say you can't be global about this. You gotta be very careful. When it comes to gluten, um, I think it's become very clear that a lot of people just feel better you know, lowering the total gluten, if not eliminating gluten in their life. Um, I say if that works for you, great. But don't be expecting to drop a boatload of weight just because you happen to be, you know, off gluten. Um, because there are plenty of uh, gluten-free substitutes that have are packed with calories. So, you know, be very careful about mm-hmm. that. It's just like a lot of people think vegetarians are little skinny people running around, and there are plenty of obese and overweight vegetarians because those, you know, if you're someone who still takes in dairy and all the rest of it. And when it comes to dairy, again, it's the same issue. You know, um, on a very individualized basis, um, is, is that working for you? You know, one of my patients only uses a little bit of skim milk in her coffee every day, and then she'll put, um, a very small amount in a smoothie that she makes every day, and that's all she does. And she's fine. You know, she's not running around, you know, diseased and, you know, demented and out of her mind. She just has a little... So every person is different. I I really feel that. And a little bit of balance is perfectly fine. And I think that, you know, reining in total caloric intake, assuming you're not an athlete, obviously, um, is very important. We eat too much. We just, you know, it's, that's toxic in and of itself. And if we have addictive-like eating behaviors, um, and there are certain foods that cue and trigger that overeating, then you start a domino effect of overeating, packing on extra pounds, increasing inflammation throughout the body, and increasing your disease risk for heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. 
you're, to me, you're a thought leader, Dr. Peak, and you know there aren't many doctors that are thinking this way, and they're they're still, you know, telling people to do uh, the old uh, pyramid or the food plate as it is here in Australia at the moment, and and in the U.S. I believe. So, you know, how do we get to the? How do we change this? How do we get to the masses to help them understand that? what we've been told may not be what is exactly right for us and that it is an individual pursuit and and that's what's so frustrating is that I listen um to you and I, and and I go why aren't there more like you out there telling their clients that food has something to do with their their health but most people come to me and they say oh I have such and such a disease and um my doctor said that it's got nothing to do with the food that I eat well, that's, you know, makes me crazy. It drives me crazy, and it's a short drive at that. Um, because, to be perfectly blunt with you, um, I, I wish I could clone myself. There are, you know, thought leaders out there. They're just not enough. And, you know, it's through this webinar and it's through the messaging we're doing with all of the work that we do, you know, for large audiences out there that we're getting the message out. Um, you know, I'm an oddity in the United States. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but the grand majority of physicians in the United States have absolutely no training in nutrition. None. Zero. Not even an hour. Whatever a physician may know about it is something they probably read in a magazine somewhere. Um, what I did was after my formal training, I went back into academia um, under what we call the Pew Scholarship, and I became a, a, a scholar in nutrition and metabolism, but only because I went out and I did that separately outside of my traditional training and therefore became an academic in this. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous. I personally feel that nutrition should be an integral piece of the curriculum as well as physical activity. You know, you're asking physicians to write prescriptions for physical activity. Really? You know, many of them don't exercise to start with, so you can't talk about something you don't do. Um, now, the good news is the younger ones coming through are getting better and better at it. But I'll tell you, you know, it, it's, been a, it's been a hard haul here. Whereas with nutrition, you know, that is biochemistry, Cindy. This is a this is a very tough subject. You've got to know what you're talking about. You have to know the science, which means that you had to have taken some formal coursework and been tested on it. But that still does not exist in the United States. So I teach in the medical school, and every time I teach, it's standing room only. And guess who's standing in there, too? The faculty, because they need to know it, too. It's not just the students. So, you know, we're slowly but surely getting the point out there. You know, uh, I just wish it would go faster, that's all. Yeah, that just that makes my heart sing. I, like, we have very few doctors here that um, are talking about nutrition. And, look, I've met this a beautiful young intern. You know, she's just been out three months, and she's at the local hospital. And I said to her, I said, how much training do you do in nutrition? And she put her eyes in the air, and she went, oh, I think I did a little in gastro in first year. And I was floored because I thought, surely it's changing, you know. Surely there's this momentum happening in the institution of 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 medicine is realizing that where it's going is 
that we have to look at the food that um, people are eating because this is what's making us sick and this is what's causing the food addictions and everything like that. What I would like to do is just um, for our last 10 minutes that we've got here, I would really love to ask you a question that I don't understand and I'm hoping you may be able to help me with the relationship and everybody's talking about it at the moment. The relationship between the hormones for hunger, um, such as the ghrelin and the leptin, and can you explain that that whole relationship that's happening there? And because everyone seems to be making a point about it, and um, I'm hoping you can. Well, I do too. When I wrote when I wrote the hunger fix, you know, I made a big point of really trying to get people to understand. Um, that there's this beautiful choreography that the body has um, all set up um, to be able to help us with the issue of appetite and hunger. All right, so how does it all start? Number one, um, leptin is a hormone that's secreted right around um, the fat cells throughout the body. So it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little BFF thing. It's a best friend, you know. It kind of hangs out with, you know, fat cells. Now, what's its main job in life? Its main job in life is to communicate to the brain, um, you know, how well the fuel supply is looking. Think of it like the dashboard, you know, that, that fuel gauge um, in your car. It says, oh, look, I have a lot of fuel. Whoops, I don't have enough fuel, okay? Yes. So leptin will always look at those fat cells. And let's just say, for instance, I have not eaten for six hours. Now I'm really drawing on my fat cells, and the fat um, amount is dropping now because I'm using it now to be able to get around and do my thing, and it's been too long since I ate. So now leptin is going to cue the brain. It'll say, "Uh uh-oh, fuel supply is low, right? So you better um, incite hunger. So then the brain, that's the hypothalamus of the brain, that's the command central up there, way up there. All right, so that part of the brain then communicates with the stomach. Now, how does it do that? Well, down in the stomach, in, you know, uh, the curvature of the stomach, um, is where another hormone hangs out. It's called ghrelin. Um, and ghrelin is one of the most powerful stimulants to appetite on the planet. This, this hormone, when it's stimulated, honey, nothing's going to stop it. You are going to start foraging for food, whether you like it or not. So um, if I'm starving, if I'm out somewhere you know, on a desert island or something, this is a beautiful mechanism to be able to um, help me um, uh, uh, launch a lot of foraging for food. If I didn't feel hunger then I'm not going to be looking for berries and, you know, catching a fish or something just to stay alive. I'll just sit there like a, you know, lump of coal. Um, So it's a beautiful system. If you don't get enough sleep, the entire system falls apart. That's why when we um, shortchange ourselves on sleep, then when we try to wake up in the morning, um, you know, after only four hours of sleep or even less, um, then we start eating everything that's not packed down. Why? Because ghrelin and leptin are now impaired and dysfunctional. You have to have normal sleep, ideally seven to eight hours, in your system for ghrelin and for um, leptin to operate efficiently. That's it. End of story. Okay? So that's how that whole thing works. Another very powerful hormone in this whole thing is insulin. And insulin is very important in the storage 
and in the um, uh, uh, release of fat throughout the body. And insulin will, uh, uh, if you have too much, especially uh, carbohydrate on board, um, uh, then insulin levels rise. And next thing you know, you've got boatloads of extra fat storage going on. Um, and if you're over the age of 40, a lot of that fat storage is happening deep inside your belly, which, of course, is causing, you know, um, increased risk for heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. When I wrote The Hunger Fix, I made a big point of showing how all of these hormones dance together in the body and how they can become impaired by lifestyle choices like poor sleep, for instance, and another hormone, cortisol, for stress. When you walk around just totally stressed out all the time, this is also another issue that gets us into all kinds mm. of trouble. So I would say that everybody needs to get the hunger fix and, and really learn about what you're talking about. And one of the things you talk about are the three-stage, um, it's, a, it's a three-stage thing. Could you just outline those three stages? Very simple. Um, and I'm talking about if you really want to start reining in your compulsive eating and all the rest of it, I, I need you to take whatever the trigger foods are and get them the heck out of your house. Just, just run from them. All right? At least in your home, that could be a safe haven. I can't guarantee what's going on out in the real world. All right. And then during um, detox, basically, for lack of a better term, um, you know, you're learning to be able to now substitute healthy foods that are tasty, delicious. I have tons of recipes food plans in the book that will help substitute in and switch out for what you were doing before. At the same time, I'm going to get you up and walking. At the same time, I'm going to get you to become more mindful. We're going to do this day by day, little step by little step, but it's going to be huge progress. The second stage is beginner recovery. This is where you practice, practice, practice. Everything you learned in detox, now you're going to practice, practice, practice. And the detox phase is usually four to six weeks. And then we're off and running. And then after you've been practicing, 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 making progress, you, you also can slip and slide all over the place, come back again, regroup. That's perfectly fine. But when you've reached about 80% of where you need to be, the binging is now pretty much under control. You're actually seeing a healthy change in your body. Then you're ready to move to master recovery, and we all want to be masters which means that the master is someone who just, you know, works hard every single day and is is willing to just, you know, continue to whack away, practice, practice, practice. You may fall, you stand up, you do it again, again and again, keep learning more valuable lessons and keep applying them. That's what the master does. And again, should you have a tough time and you need to regroup, you'd simply circle back to wherever it works for you to begin the regrouping process, whether it's detox or it's a beginner recovery. It's all the same. Just want it to work for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So just keep coming back to home base. And, you know, a lot of people um, say, you know, I've been on this protocol and I was doing so well and then I went off it. And no, no. What happened was go back to what I said. I guarantee you it was a stress that you could not figure out how to handle without soothing yourself with those foods again. And if you just get help with that, coaching 
You know, this is what I do. You know, if you go to my website, you see I do coaching. I sit down and I help people walk through that. Another thing that you could do is, you know, get help, a therapist, somebody out there who can kind of teach you some of the new tools you can use to be able to become much more um, effective at adapting and adjusting to life stresses without always defaulting to self-destruction. Yeah. Well, let me let everybody know um, how to get to um, you and, and learn more about you and get that book on. Um, and, and it's available also electronically, isn't it? So we can get oh it. Oh my gosh! Away. You can you can get it. You can get the book um, by ebook in a heartbeat. Amazon.com, all of that. Um, you could just go to any one of those places. Um, where they have e-books. Um, and I, obviously, Amazon here is the big one. Um, but it's the Hunger Fix. Um, and my website is drpeeke.com. And you, there's a contact us form there. And if you want to ask me a specific question, do it there. Or go to my Facebook, for crying out loud. That's global. Um, and like me on Facebook, please. Um, and that is Dr. Pam Peek, P-E-E-K-E. You'll find me in a heartbeat, Dr. Pam Peek. And then also um, follow me on Twitter um, with um, Pam Peek MD. So, you know, it's, uh, or P Peek MD. Um, it's so easy to be able to, you know, contact me, stay with me. I really enjoy my Facebook interactions big time. And you can post a comment, you can post a question on my message board, and I'm more than happy to deal with you um, because it, it gives me nothing but pleasure to teach and to reach out and to uh, touch you. Well, what we've done is that we have um, on the page that everybody's listening in, if they're listening on um, in the webinar, we've actually put links to everything for you. So they can find you really easy if they haven't written it down or they're in the car listening or whatever they're doing or how they're listening to you. Um, we've put that on, on, the, on the link. Um, so, look, Dr. Pete, thank you so much for your time. Look, I have enjoyed it and I know... Um, many other people have enjoyed it and I actually rang some people before I spoke to you and just asked them what questions do you want me to ask Dr. Peake especially you know friends that just cannot get off this so hopefully well I think you've answered I, I just think what you talk about is just brilliant um, and next month we will be talking to Dr. Jack Cruz a neurosurgeon who has created a blog specialising in leptin sensitivity which Dr. Peake has been talking about and cold thermogenesis Dr. Jack Cruz is a mentor of mine, as is Dr. Peake, without her really knowing it. <laughs> and he makes me think outside the square. He's my oh, mentor, Einstein. Yeah. Um, make sure you register for next month's call. We will um, send out reminders. Uh, and thank you to everyone from around the world who has contributed to this call and been on the line to hear this incredible wisdom, wisdom of Dr. Pam Peake. And thank you for taking the time out of your day and night to improve your knowledge on health and well-being in order to change your life and that of your families, friends, community, state, and country. We all have a part to play in this change, so be part of the ripple effect that is changing the world. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. 
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.